All right, guys, welcome. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. I uh, appreciate you coming on out. We are in week two of this series that we are calling. It started with three. And if it's your first time here, let me kind of catch you up to speed as to what we're doing throughout this series. This is our Christmas series, which is exciting because we love Christmas here at this church. And, and so when you begin to think about the holiday of Christmas, when you begin to think about really Christianity at large, this entire movement, this entire amazing holiday started with three people. It started with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And so all throughout this season, we're just taking some time to investigate and find out more about this family unit, where this whole thing started from. Last week, we talked about Joseph, sort of the unsung hero of the Christmas story, a guy who has no speaking lines in the Bible at all, we talked about, and yet whose life and whose actions spoke volumes, who by the very way that he lived his life and carried out his life, he influenced his son Jesus in many ways that we saw. But today, I want to talk to you about a person who is well-known to everybody, who, who plays a prominent role in this story. And of course, we're talking about Mary. Now, depending on how you were raised, I mean, if you kind of grew up in the church, depending on how you were raised, you might have what I'll call a varied interaction, varied exposure with Mary. So if you grew up Catholic, which a lot of us have grown up Catholic, if you grew up Catholic, Mary played a major role in your spiritual life. She was someone that you had a great amount of respect for. She was someone that you were told to and encouraged to pray to. Um, she was someone that you asked her to intercede on your behalf. She was the blessed Holy Mother. She was a big, big, big deal in your spiritual life. If you were raised Protestant, the extent that Mary uh, played in your life really was you know, relegated to a Christmas lawn ornament. That's about, that's about it for Protestants. I mean, you laugh because you know that's true. You could thank the Reformers for that. You know, when they pushed back against the Catholic Church, they may have pushed back a little too hard on Mary, and we've sort of lost sight on, on who she is. But wherever you are on the Mary spectrum, either, you know, very little significance in your life or a, a heck of a lot of a significance, we all sort of picture Mary looking like this. And if you're listening online, we're looking at a, a statue of Mary. And Mary always has sort of this blue cape on with a white, you know, what do you call that? A maxi dress, I guess. I don't know what that, right? Something like, maybe it's the South Florida version, all right? She's got her maxi dress on, and she always looks very at peace and, and very submissive and, and demure and, and innocent. And if you've been to a Christmas pageant and you see Mary always played by a younger woman who, generally speaking, never has any kind of speaking lines at all, just says nothing at all. She's just looking there, very quiet, very demure, very innocent. It's the Blessed Holy Mother, all right? My question is, based on what we saw in Joseph last week and, and based on what we see in the, in the way that Jesus carries out his life throughout the Gospels, is this an accurate concept of Mary? This, this sort of demure, innocent, quiet woman, is this really what she was like? And so what I want to show you today is I want to introduce you to Mary, perhaps for the very first time, the way that she actually was, the historical Mary, the version that we see in the scriptures that is just sort of hiding there in plain sight that we just pay no attention to at all. 
And what I'm going to show you, I can guarantee, is going to challenge your concept of the Virgin Mary. Because when I was first taught it, it challenged me. I mean, it pushed back on, on who I thought Mary was, on the way that I saw her in art, in the way that I saw her on film, in the way that I saw her in pageants. But this is just an accurate way to look at the Virgin Mary. Now, before we kind of get into Luke, which is where the gospel account of the Christmas story sort of takes place, I want to I show you why Luke did what he did why he took the time to write his gospel, and why he took the time to write the Christmas story. And we learn his sort of reasoning, if you will, in his prologue. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I just want to show you this real quick. He starts off by saying, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. He continues. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So what we're learning from Luke, number one, he's a medical doctor. And what he's letting us know here is that he has taken the time to interview people and to investigate everything in the life of Jesus from the very beginning. And he has written this investigative report if you will. We call it a gospel, but I think he would probably call it an investigative report. He has written this for a man named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, I don't know if this is his birth name or if he created this name, because this is a Greek name that that basically means lover of God, lover of God. And Luke says that he has written this for this man whose name is lover of God. Now, I will say this. There is a school of thought that Theophilus is not a man at all. And in fact, this is a name that Luke is using to speak to Christians, lovers of God. Because in the opening couple of sentences, he refers to us and us and us as though he is talking to a large group like us, lovers of God. And he lets us know, lovers of God, that he's been interviewing every single person in order to create what you are about to read. And what you see in the Christmas account contains very intimate details, It contains what I'll call uh, internal monologues, which lets me know, and I think it's safe to assume, that Luke interviewed Mary herself, which is fascinating. So why is this all important? Why is he letting us know that he has done this before we get into the gospel of Luke? He's saying, I have done this so that, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. And this word certain is the key word here, okay? He's saying, I want you to have security. I want you to have stability. I want you to have safety in everything that you've been taught and everything that you've known. And this word certain in the Greek is this word asphalia. It's used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's used to describe the jail cell that the disciples were held in in the book of Acts. And it's this this word picture of, of being locked down impenetrable, nailed shut. Luke is saying, I have written all of this so that your faith can be impenetrable, can be locked down, can be safe and secure, and you can lean on it and you can trust in it. Whatever we've written, you can trust it. So with that, he wants you to read the Christmas account with asphalia, certainty that you can trust it because he's done his homework. So he kicks off. And he says this, in the sixth month, 
of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Elizabeth is the way older cousin, aunt, relative of Mary. I don't know how old she is, but she's very old, and she has a miraculous birth herself. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. So, a couple of stats on Mary before we go any further. Number one, as we talked about last week, when it says she's engaged to be married, it means she's actually married. She is, they are husband and wife. Um, but until the wedding feast, which is probably going to be coming in a couple of months, they don't live together, and they are not intimate with one another. And so, but they are officially husband and wife. And since they are engaged to be married, traditionally we know that as a Jewish girl in the first century, Mary would have been about 13 years old, which is wild because there's some 45-year-olds in this room who are not ready to get married yet. All right, so she is ready to go. She's not a problem. Middle school, let's do it. I'm, I'm ready. Now, here's something else. This is a fact that we're going to learn towards the end of the message when we read it. Um, but I want to tell you it now. Because I think this fact is very important to know because this fact, which never gets discussed at all in the church, this fact is going to be the very fact that's going to allow you to see Mary in a brand new light. This fact is going to be the, 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 the pivot point for you to begin to see the entire Christmas story, the entire narrative, Mary's life, the way that she understands what's going on. It will allow you to see this whole thing in the proper, correct, scriptural context. So what you will learn later that I'm going to tell you now is that Mary is what's known as an anoween, an anoween. This is a Hebrew term. Last week, we learned that Joseph was a Sadiq. This week, we are learning that Mary is an anoween. And the, the best way to understand what an anoween is, is it is a, a class of people who could be labeled as the pious poor. And we know historically that the Anoween, there were three characteristics that would sort of describe their people group. They're, they're, they, they yearned for justice. They wanted oppression to end. And we know because of documents that they would go to the temple and they would console one another with the hope and the expectation that a Messiah, a Savior, was going to come. And with this light now, understanding that Mary is a pious poor person, is a member of the Anoween class. Let's begin to read the story that so many of us know so well. It continues. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. So this is kind of like when you're in the office and someone says, Hey, you're just the person I was looking for, right? Never, that's never good when someone says that to you. It's never your boy. You know what's coming next is not good. It's never like your boss saying, hey, I wanted to give you the day off and a fistful of cash, all right? It's always some super annoying task that's going to follow. So he says, oh, greetings, favored woman. The Lord, the Lord is with you. Continues. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. Continues. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. That's important. And he will reign over Israel forever. Additionally important. His kingdom will never end. So, this angel appears 
out of nowhere. And when we think of angels, we kind of think of Valentine's Day, this chubby little kid with a bow and arrow. That is not what an angel looks like. Angels are imposing huge figures that are described as being warlike. And whenever an angel shows up in the scripture, the human being is scared. The shepherds are scared. You see that Mary is scared. He goes, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, because these are, I believe, wild-looking individuals. But he shows up and he goes, hey, Mary, I got good news for you. You're going to have a son, and you're going to give birth to the future king of Israel. And, and this announcement is a massive part of the story. And Mary hears this, and this angel appears out of nowhere, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen an angel, but I have not. But she only has one question, just one question. How can this happen? I'm a virgin. She's like, I may be 13. I have not gone to any school, but I know how all that works, all right? So walk me through, Gabriel. How is this all going to happen? Because this sounds a little, a little suspect. So he says, all right, not a problem. Here's how it's going to work. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And this word overshadow is the same word that we see in Genesis when God's Spirit hovers over the water, creating. That is the same word here that we see here. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the, and the power of the Most High will hover over you. And the reason is, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And then Mary famously says, her most famous line, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Now, normally when we read this or we read it in our minds or we hear it perhaps in a, in a movie or maybe in a pageant, generally speaking, we read this or hear it read as, may it be, Lord. Just may it very, very quiet, very demure, very submissive. Now, I'll just tell you this. There is a ton happening in this very small line here. Our very understanding of Mary will change and shift based on the way that we actually probably should be reading this line. So first of all, one of the first things that we learn from this line is that when she says yes, all right, her life was ripped apart at the seams. When she said yes to God and yes to this plan, she understood what the consequences would be. When she said yes to God, she knew, as we talked about last week, she knew that she would be labeled as an adulteress. She knew that by saying yes to God, that her marriage to Joseph would probably end in a divorce. She knew that perhaps by saying yes to God, that it actually might be the end of her life. That by saying yes to this plan, it could actually cause physical harm to her. She might get stoned because she knew the law. She might be forced to drink the bitter waters like we talked about last week. And even by a miracle, maybe even if her husband decides to choose grace over law, right, and, and, and allow her to be saved, even if that happens, her son would still be born as an illegitimate child. That he would be labeled in, in, in the Hebrew as a mamzer. This is, a, this is a, an illegitimate child who, as he grew, would be prevented from getting involved in certain spiritual ceremonies, who, as an adult, would not be allowed to marry any woman who she herself was not a female mamzer. So, so saying yes to God would have a massive, massive impact on her life. And the big question 
that I had is why would Mary, or why did Mary consent to this plan? Why would she say, knowing all of this, why would she say yes? Because she knew God. She knew him well. She knew that God was a merciful God. She understood that if God was bringing her to this, that God would bring her through this. And historically, she knew from from the Hebrew Bible, from what she had been taught, that, that God historically has protected threatened women. She had heard growing up that God protected women like Rahab and Tamar, Ruth and Bathsheba, all women who would eventually appear in the the genealogy of Jesus. And so knowing this, in faith, she said yes. She submitted her life to God, and because of that decision, the world was never the same since. But there's something else going on here. There's something I believe much deeper happening when, when she said yes, when she said May it be, as we always read, may it be, Lord. See, she knew that all the Anoween's dreams for Israel would come true. All the things that she'd been praying for her whole life, all the things that her parents, all the Anoween's for generations who had been praying for justice to be done, for oppression to end, for the poor to be lifted up, she knew that through her son, this Messiah, this coming king of Jerusalem who would sit on David's throne, she knew that he would accomplish everything that the Anoweens had been praying for for generations and generations. And so I believe that when she said, may it be, she said it with excited commitment. It was kind of like, God, we've been waiting for this. Lord, we have been praying for this for years. We didn't think this was ever going to happen, if I'm being honest with you. And so if this is how you want to start it all, if you want to begin this with me, may it be. I am here. Use me. Let's do this. Yes, yes, we commit to your plan to making all of this happen. Now, this is not the way that we picture Mary. This is not the way that we've heard her read this line or portrayed in movies or or in pageants. And you might say, well, how do we know this is true? How do we know that, that this interpretation of this excited commitment and this call to seeing the Anoween's dreams coming true, how do we know that's accurate? How can we trust that? We know it's accurate because of what comes next. See, as, as soon as she says these words and she relays this amazing truth to her, her cousin Elizabeth, Mary breaks into song. You didn't know it was a musical, did you? I'm going to sing it for you. No, Christine is going to sing it later on, okay? She bursts into song, and, and this song has a name. It's been titled The Magnificat, okay? Let me, let me talk to you about what the Magnificat is. First of all, before we read it, you need to remember that it's being sung by an Anoween. So a, as you read the words and you, and you hear what she's saying, you have to remember that this is a person who is desperately poor. This is a woman who is oppressed by Rome, by King Herod, by Caesar Augustus. This song, which is normally understood as just being a song about her pious faith, really when you read the words and what she's saying, it is a song about God himself cracking open the heavens and establishing justice here on this earth and rooting out all of the unjust rulers in her day. This song in Guatemala in the 1980s, was outlawed. 
for being too politically subversive. This is the kind of song that if Herod himself, who was afraid of the baby Jesus, if he had heard this song, if he heard what Mary, one of his subjects, was saying out there in the boondocks, he would have had her executed on the spot. So with that, let's find out what the blessed Holy Mother was saying 2,000 years ago. She starts off, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She breaks out in song. And she is giving glory to God. Magnificat means glory in Latin. That is, so she is giving glory. Why does she do this? Why is she breaking out in song? Why is she giving him glory? Because, for it says, he has been mindful of the humble state. That's the word anawin. That's how we know this. The humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, except Protestants, of course, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, what follows is a major announcement. It's a major announcement. It's coming from a voice from the margins of society that is crying out that justice has finally arrived. She sings, continues, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation, continues. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And this is where it starts to get subversive. And this is where it starts to get dangerous. She sings, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. For anyone listening to this song, for anyone sitting on the margins of society like Mary was, like the Anawin were, like most people in her part of the world, what she was saying here, what she was singing, could only mean one thing, that King Herod would be overthrown that the Anoween would rise. For us to understand the social implications of how powerful this song is, and it's hard for us to really understand it, the best way you can understand it is, is to think about the great civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. That is what this song is. That is the power that is behind this song. And the reason it's so important for us as Christians to understand how powerful this song is, to understand exactly what she was saying is because if Mary was singing this song, and she was, then we need to begin to reevaluate the way that we picture Mary. Because as Christians, we've been taught to see her as submissive. And she was. We've been taught to see her as holy, And she was. And we've been taught to see her as humble. And she was. But we have completely missed what was hiding in plain sight that this 13-year-old girl was tenacious and courageous and gutsy and resolved. For all intents and purposes, she was a revolutionary who was calling for the overthrow of the current despotic regime, Rome and Caesar and Herod. 
This was no demure, silent woman. This was a fighter. And that was Jesus' mother. And that changes everything. Eight days later. Eight days after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, they go to the temple. And they go there for two reasons. Number one, Mary needs to go through a purification ritual. As a Jewish woman, after giving birth, she would have been deemed unclean, so she would need to go and, and have a sacrifice, and, and she would be uh, ritualistically uh, purified at that moment. But Jesus would go because he would need to be circumcised. Now, while they're there, they meet a man named Simeon, who is extremely old. And, and Luke lets us know that at some point in Simeon's life, the Lord told him that he, Simeon, would not die until he saw with his own eyes the Messiah, the Savior of this world. And so we meet Simeon, and he walks over to Mary and Joseph, and, 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 and he picks up Jesus, and he says these words. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. He can finally die. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Again, this man, Simeon, who perhaps they had never met before, he is out of the blue confirming everything that Mary had been told, everything that Joseph had been told. Now, it's a little different because Simeon is talking about all people. I think Mary and Joseph sort of thought maybe just about Jewish people, so this is a little different, but this is great. I mean, great. I mean he's, a, he's, a, he's a righteous, just ruler. He should be good to all people. This makes sense. And then he says something that would be a turning point in Mary's life. He says something that I believe would challenge Mary for the rest of her days. He says, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he stops, and he looks right at Mary. And he says, and a sword will pierce your very soul. For hundreds of years, theologians have debated exactly what Simeon meant here when he, when he was talking about this sword. And some say, well, you know, Jesus at one point says that he came to bring the sword, so maybe he's alluding to that. Well, I believe in this moment, I think Simeon has chosen words that only a mother would understand. What I think he's saying here is that, Mary, this dream that you have of your son having a triumphant victory on this earth will happen, but it's not going to happen through military victory, and it's not going to happen through political revolution, it will happen through the death of your very soul, your precious newborn baby. And that was something she was not expecting to hear. It's something that, that quite frankly, threw her. And see, in that moment, 
What, what, what she faced is something that so many of us face is that the way of the cross confounds our expectation. For generation after generation, hundreds if not thousands of years, Jewish people were waiting with hope and expectation for a Messiah that would come with a sword, who would bring down unjust rulers, who would bring victory for the, for the nation of Israel, who would sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And when Jesus showed up, they were confused. They were confused to see a man who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Savior, where, where, where prophecies in the Hebrew Bible certainly pointed to him, but he was rejected, and he was maligned, and, and he was humble. And it made no sense that when this supposed Messiah was finally making his way into Jerusalem, that he chose not to ride on a stallion like a king would, but rather a, a little cult. See, in that moment where Mary found herself, she finds herself in a place where we often find ourselves. See, so many of us are, we have these preconceived notions about who God is. We have these preconceived notions about how God should act. We have these preconceived notions about what salvation should look like and how salvation should occur. And when we are finally confronted with the cross, it rocks our world. And it causes some of us to fall, like Simeon had predicted. And it causes some of us to rise. It would take years and years and years for Mary to begin to understand that her son Jesus, the king of Israel, would not sit on a physical throne, but rather would die a criminal's death on a cross. That her very soul, her child, was sent to this world not to save them from Rome, but to save them from their sins. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? So undoubtedly, you've heard many messages on Mary. There's, there, there's so much that you can learn from this woman, but, woman's life. But there's one aspect that I just want us to focus on for this season. And it's an aspect that I hope helps you in your relationship and your journey with God. And it's this, it's this idea that faith develops. So what you see in Mary, what you see in her life is a faith that struggles and learns and grows until she finally understood what God was truly doing in this world through her son, Jesus Christ. No one None of us wakes up on, let's call it day two of being a Christian and understands it all. Nobody wakes up and has this, this perfect faith. We like to say in this church that you can know God in an instant. You can know him in a moment, but it will also take you a lifetime to figure out exactly what that means. So if you are a person where you find yourself saying, you know, I wish I had stronger faith. Remember that it's a process. Remember that there are going to be ups 
And there are going to be downs. There are times that you're going to trust God. There are going to be times that you're going to doubt God. There are going to be times that you think you understand what he's doing in your life. And there are going to be times that you have no idea what's going on. But what we see in the life of Mary, not only in the Christmas story, but throughout the rest of the Gospels, is that she is a woman who shows us that your concept of God will evolve the more you trust him, the more of your life that you hand over to him. And if you are a person who you would say, you know what, I wish, I wish my faith was stronger. I, I kind of look around and I see people whose faith just seems to be really strong. I wish I had that in January. We're gonna be kicking off a brand new series talking about ways in which you can grow your faith and ways in which God grows our faith. So this week, as we kind of get closer and closer and closer to Christmas, as you see manger scenes, as you hear silent night, as you see sort of the candlelit face of Mary in, in, in mangers all over this city, remember that it started with a mother whose faith was courageous. Yes, she was holy. Yes, she had submitted her life to the Lord. And yes, she was blessed. But she was ready to charge this world in the name of her son, Jesus Christ. And I think we have all been called to do the same thing, to make a difference in this world for the kingdom of God. And it all started with a mom on the margins of society who is looking to a God who's been working since the beginning of time to set us free and to save us from our sins. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. I wanna thank you for the life of Mary. Lord, a, a woman who, to be honest with you, has not gotten the respect inside of many churches that she is deserving of. But I pray, Lord, that today our eyes would be opened more clearly to see who this woman actually was, who you chose to give birth, who you chose to partner up with Joseph so that there was a home life that could raise and rear and point the Messiah of this world in the direction that he needed to be in. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would have a faith as courageous as that young 13-year-old girl who knew, Lord, that you were a merciful God who will always protect us. But ultimately, Lord, we know that particularly during this Christmas season, it's about making a difference in the communities that we live in, to getting out there and spreading the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ and why he was sent to this world to sit on a heavenly throne and to set us free from the oppression, not of Rome, Lord, but of sin. Thank you, God, that for 2,000 years, this song that we've been calling the Magnificat, the song that the Virgin Mary sang, thank you that that was saved. That we now could sing it, an ancient song. To hear the, to hear the joy in the heart of a woman who is about to hold God in her hands. 
We ask all this in Jesus' name.